Hello and welcome to episode seven of Matchet and the Other Guy. And thank you very much for joining us. I'm here down at Lake Wiley with my good friend Kevin and we're going to have a conversation. As always, I have no idea what that conversation is going to be about and what it will concern. So Kevin, get us up and running. What are we talking about today? Well, you may remember uh, quite a little ways back, we were having a discussion one time about a project that we were kind of thinking about. And I said, oh, well, you must have all these great uh, crew shirts from your, your days uh, in the pit lanes and such. And you said, well, I hardly have any. Expand <laughs> upon that. Yeah, you, Formula One team gear, really. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, I, do, I, I, I have, I think, one piece of Benetton uh, team kit, which is a, a rain jacket. Uh, and that's the only thing I have. And I really wish I had a, a race shirt because, you know, it'd just be nice to have one. You know, I'd like, I'd like to frame it and put it on the wall, but I, I haven't got it. And the reason I haven't got it, yes, as we chatted about before, was typically at the end of the season, this is when I was racing, you know, a quarter of a century ago pretty much now, uh, Adelaide was always the last race of the season in, in Australia. And it was... Um, it was very typical that in that last race, uh, there would be a lot of enthusiasts and supporters of the sport would love to get hold of some pit equipment. Absolutely, uh, some yeah. equipment, uh, team equipment. Uh, that last race in Adelaide, Australia, was a wonderful event. It was great fun from start to finish. And the Australians, they love motorsport. They absolutely adore Formula One. And uh, of course, they're a very laid back nation. Um, any opportunity to have a beer, let's have a beer. And uh, we enjoyed that. We're always being very well taken care of. And um, if we're in the hotel bar, folks want to come up and have a chat and talk about sport in general. It's great fun. And after the race in Adelaide, um, I was always um, looking for somewhere to go. Our boss, let me put it this way, our boss, Flavio Briatore, well-known, flamboyant, Italian businessman used to say to us at the end of the season we don't really care how you get back to England because going back to England from Australia it doesn't matter which direction you go it's pretty much it's, it's quite a journey it's, way. it's a, quite a journey whether you go back via the United States whether you go back via Asia whether you want to stop off at Bali um, go back to Europe or wh- wherever it would be pretty much it doesn't really make a great deal of difference financially to the team what you do and unlike some teams um, yeah, and every team had their own different management style uh, Flavio didn't care how we got back so I would make the, 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 the decision along with a few teammates to always try and go to the Barrier Reef uh, up, in, up in Queensland North okay. Australia and, and dive off the Barrier Reef which was just a tremendous experience Loved so it, it kind of got to be tradition i guess it became a little bit of a tradition to do that yeah to go up to queensland um port douglas was the little town right right at you know i could say right at the side of the reef but i mean it's like an hour's boat trip to get out to the reef you know mm-hmm. uh, so we do that yeah so that's 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 really the reason why one of the main reasons why i haven't got a race shirt hanging in my house framed which much i would like the other reason is that uh you may know that I, uh, I lived in France for about 15 years. Having quit Benetton, I went down to France to, uh, you know, 
become a writer because I thought that'd be a cool thing to do. Yep. <laughs> but you know, I was. Well, I, many uh, books uh, later, apparently it must have been. <laughs> well, it worked out okay. But one of the main reasons for going to France was it was the cheapest place I could find to live. England was too expensive, and property in France at the time was very affordable. Uh, so I bought a ramshackle old farmhouse down in France. But when I eventually left France to move over to the States full time. I simply had to get rid of everything, you know, not everything, but 90% of stuff. It's simply just too heavy and too expensive to transport across the Atlantic. Yeah. So a lot of other stuff went as well, you know, and um, yes, I've now sort of, I, I, I've, I've taught myself to let go of stuff. It's actually been a great cathartic experience moving from England to France and France to the States because it forces you to let go of stuff. Yeah. That's true. And that it's kind of seems to be a trend right now is the whole downsizing and, and getting the, qual- the quality items to stay and those that are kind of a burden moved on. Yeah. And we've, there's something that we've talked about before. Um, it's, the, it's the weight of the physical weight, the bass, if you like, if, of, of books and vinyl albums and that sort of stuff. Like when you're moving house, it's only when you start to put all this stuff into boxes and load it into trucks to move from A to B that you realize just how much stuff you've amassed, you mm-hmm. know. And I would find, as, I, as I'm sure we all do, that when I move from Chippy Norton in Oxfordshire down to uh, Cognac in France, like everybody does, you know, I put everything into cardboard boxes and sealed it up with tape and wrote on the box diligently what was in there. And I found that when I was moving from France over to the States, 85% of those boxes had never been opened. Yeah. From the day that I left England. So there was the evidence. Like, you know, you, you amass all this stuff and occasionally you would open the box and look in and say, oh, yes, I remember that. Wasn't that fun? Close the box and never think about it again until the next time you <laughs> open the box. So, um, you know, I got rid of a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, there's been, been many times I've come across something and go, I forgot I even had this. Exactly and that. Appa- yeah. Apparently it's not on the uh, user list or often found and put to its uh, proper use very often yes i mean i i think that if you actually keep a list keep a tag a tally of of items of clothing uh maybe this is more of a guy thing i don't know items of clothing and items you use around the house on a daily basis throughout a week or throughout a month it's almost nothing in comparison to the stuff that you've got right yeah yeah and you start off i mean you know here you, here you start off, you know, kind of early in your career. You're maybe getting your first apartment, and you're wanting to build and build, and you need, yeah, oh, I need a potato masher. I don't have a potato masher, right, or whatever. And then you get something as a gift or a hand-me-down, and you're building and building. And then at what point, you know, in someone's life, they decide, oh, now it's time to start thinning that back down. I don't need it. So you go up the hill, and now yeah. you're back on the downslope. Yeah. Well, there was a there was a tradition in England, and I'm sure. You will correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure the tradition's the same in the United States. That at one time, um, there was this there was this tradition in England called the bottom drawer tradition, and it was gifts from parents and and relatives that were put in the bottom drawer of a dressing um, dressing table, whatever it would be, you know, chest of drawers, so that when you got married, you started to amass a certain amount of essentials you would need, you know, silverware, plates, pots and pans, and you say, you know, potato masher, the bottom, put that in the bottom drawer, it'd be great when you get married, but of course, you know, the world has changed, society's changed now, most folks, 
they leave home before they get married. They're in an apartment, and you know you've you've already got all of that stuff. So even before you get married, like yeah. you hardly really need anything. You know, everyone's got everything they need. Quite frankly, you don't need. 18 potato mashes, I, I don't think. I've never found a need for 18. Oh, unless you're feeding, feeding little, literally the regiment in the army or something like that. <laughs> That's right, yes, yeah. yeah. So we, I, I, do, do you feel the same way as I've sort of in, intimated there that unloading stuff and getting rid of stuff and basically now just not buying anywhere near the amount of stuff? Are you, are you that way too? I'm starting to follow that direction, which, uh, again, that makes my wife smile somewhere. She's, she's grinning now. But, uh, yeah, you start to just realize, you know, if you don't use it or, or whatever, or if you're start collecting something that you're passionate about, you might let a lot of other stuff go to, to help that along. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, moving, and you know, if you have, like, things that are just take up weight, books and, yes. and all that, it's probably a good idea if you're going to become a collector at any age to kind of think about that down the line because it's going to be a whole different ball game if you collect, say, baseball cards as a, as a side to cuckoo clocks. Imagine yes, you know moving yeah. eighteen, you know, <laughs> yeah. fifty or so cuckoo clocks as opposed to you know one box of quality cards. Maybe yeah. may take up one space in a shoebox. Yes, I mean there are folks that collect Formula One race engines, blocks, and you know that sort of stuff. Where well, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to move that stuff very far, would you? Really? No matter what it is out there, there's a market for it. There's, Somebody's going to collect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There absolutely is. Yeah. Yes, I, uh, I, I, I'm pleased that I've reached that stage in my life now where I don't, I don't really look to amass things any longer i used to like to collect books at one time and i'd look for you know first editions i mean not particularly rare first editions because i could never afford them but a few bookshops you know would would have nice copies of books what i consider nice you know beautiful sort of leather bound copies not particularly uh, valuable in terms of you know collectible books but they're kind of cool volumes to have absolutely but i i hear the same problem you know i as you know, you know, I'm a Hemingway reader, and I like Hemingway books, but I, you'll probably notice on my bookshelf in there, most of the books on that bookshelf are, the, the majority of them are Hemingway books and Orwell books, but the Hemingway books, are, I've got the same title three or four times, you know, because I'd come mm. across another fun edition and think, oh, yeah. oh, I must have that, let's add that to the collection, you know, sure. but, but <laughs> what am I going to do? You know, you're not going to read one for whom the bell tolls. I think there's probably three or four copies of whom the bell tolls on the bookcase. We're well, only going to read one, but yes, I have I have weaned myself weaned myself off that. Well, for quite some time with your career, your your job was very nomadic. Yeah. So you probably had to travel quite light. So there wasn't uh, a big need much for even a home base. Never mind a home base filled with stuff. Yeah. Well, you're right. This is something we've chatted about before, isn't it? That um, you know. In, in our younger years, and I was racing really in my 30s, uh, late 20s and 30s, but in that lifestyle, or pretty much any, any career when you're much younger, at the drop of a hat, you're prepared to just jump on a plane and, and go, right? You don't, yeah. you don't, you know, you... If I'm back in a week, great. If not, if it's three yeah. weeks, hey, I've got no place I have to be. Yeah, yeah. And it, that that alone, that that too, I say that alone. That too is also good good practice for traveling in independence, because you see so many folks when they're traveling and they go on vacation. It's almost a, a cliche, you know, sort of bags and bags and bags of stuff that they take with them. 
Well, I've always just thought, wherever you're going to go, within reason in the world, if you haven't got a spare pair of socks or you've forgotten a pair of shoes or whatever it will be, there's probably going to be a shop Somebody's going to sell you. <laughs> right. Exactly. You're going to be able to get someone, get them right there, right? So when you wrapped up every, did did, did you uh, holiday in, in Australia each time or there a time when you went straight off to someplace else or? Well, Towards the end of my time with the race team, uh, so we won the World Championship, the Constructors World Championship in 95. Uh, but we were, we as a team, Benetton, were so concerned about not letting the ball slip away from us now we'd got it, that we went straight back uh, to England after 95, I seem to remember, uh, to start work as soon as possible on the 96 car. Well, you could have been more geared up and ready to go. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it didn't work out for us, as, as history will, will tell us. You know, the loss of uh, Michael Schumacher to Ferrari fundamentally, you know, finished, finished Benetton. Uh, Michael left, and then there was, a, you know, there was a plethora of key personnel following him along. Um, Rory Byrne, the you know, aerodynamicist, left, and then Ross Braun, the great strategist, and... Um, great engineering brain left the team and then Flavio left the team and within a very short space of time all of a sudden Benetton wasn't Benetton any longer and I felt exactly the same way you know um, and something I've written about in in my books Um, we change as we go through life you know what was important to us I say yesterday is probably a short short time frame but what was important to us 10 years ago probably it isn't as important to us now you know we, oh, we, we yeah. shift you, as we you, go you through evolve. life don't we? Evolve. we evolve that and there's nothing wrong i don't think there's anything wrong with it it's just you know so yes i was quite happy when my days at banaton came to an end primarily because of my back injury um in, in that was in 96 uh in brazil uh, so i did the first couple of races but we were kevin we were so exhausted even before the first race began in 96 because we uh, we'd been testing and testing and testing with a new car uh, and we had two new drivers Berger and Alacy on board um, were nowhere near as proficient as given us the correct feedback that we wanted to make progress on the car and um, you know we were we as a team were exhausted I think there was a there was a sort of talk about virus and you know, I think most of the team were were affected with either severe flu or bronchitis at one point. Yeah, as well. I remember you mentioning that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so by the time we got to the first race, which, if I remember right, was down back down in Australia, it was Melbourne. Um, we were absolutely destroyed before we started, and I remember when I got to Brazil, which I think was that was probably round two or round three. I can't remember now. Um, you know, I, 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 I just couldn't go on any longer. I mean, I just decided that was it. That was it. So I was probably in a weakened state anyway, and uh, had that um, back injury through a through a during a practice pit stop on the Thursday, uh, and that fundamentally finished my time as as a race team mechanic. And then I went to work on the test team for a while. But that was in this stage. I was already getting geared up for the move to France. So I'd already yep. sort of set my goals in the future. And, um, you know, so what was happening around me was kind of okay. I wasn't upset by having to stop racing. Um, and again, I'd, I'd seen with my own eyes, as we all had the, 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 the collapse of what was Benetton. Benetton simply wasn't, wasn't the same thing any longer. So, um, 
Yeah, not sure how we got onto that, but <laughs> not that it matters. <laughs> well, during during the time you were you were racing and stuff, you were you know obviously in the garage almost all the time. But yeah. Which which uh, track and city did you most enjoy visiting? You know, each year. Without any, I mean, Formula One used to go to some terrific tracks and still still does visit some, visit some great tracks. But it's the old classic circuits that have always excited me. Um, particularly Monza and Spa. Uh, but if I was to, if I, if anyone, anybody asks, Monaco again, of course, but if anybody asks which is the race, you know, you know, you, I, I enjoyed the most, it would be Suzuka in Japan. Oh, really? Beautiful country. I've always had a soft spot for uh, Japan. I like to hear, the, I don't speak Japanese, but I like to hear the language being spoken. I think it's a very beguiling, wonderful language when spoken softly and um the circuit is is a great challenge with the fact that it's it is both clockwise and counterclockwise due to the changeover of the circuit halfway through um so it's neither one or the other it's a little of each great racing memories particularly of Senna and Prost coming together uh, twice hmm. at the hairpin but primarily it is the enthusiasm of the Japanese race supporters, which was just terrific. That, yeah, that's a big part of it. Incredibly for sure. polite. Um, if they were, you know, if if they were told, please don't cross this line, don't get any closer to the garages because we need to protect the cars and we need to be, you know, we need to consider the safety of everybody. So don't cross that line. Most other circuits, like if you at Monza, for example, we'd put tensor barriers, you know, sort of um, corded barriers, like you see at airports across the pit lane and across the garage entrance to prevent people coming through well you know you will constantly have to keep pushing people back get back yeah. ever please you know give us some space to work but in japan you simply didn't need to do it you would have a painted line that was on the was on the uh, on the pit lane it had been there for years one side was the garages and one side was the pit lane and i think it actually says painted on the line pit lane and garage each side and the supporters would come right up to that line and never, never cross it. Wow. They would never cross it. They would, you know, it was wonderful. Fervent enthusiasm, but with great respect. Yes, with great respect. Yes, that's exactly it. They had wonderful... They seemed to support everybody. Um, but, you know, of course, they were, they were passionate about Honda. They were passionate about, about, about Senna. The Honda connection, I'm, I'm for sure. Passionate about the Japanese drivers. But they had a genuine support for all teams. They, uh, it was tremendous. And... Um, uh, in the days leading up to 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 the uh, to the Grand Prix weekend itself, we would fly out, for example, a week before the race. All teams would, and would be building the cars in the pit lane garages and getting to the point of firing up the cars, firing up the engine on the Thursday, uh, and uh, with the car on high stands up in the air, and then go through the gearbox, uh, work the car through the transmission to make sure that all the gears were working. And in the days leading up to that point. It was traditional that all the local schools would bring the kids into the circuit and they would be allowed to sit on the grandstands opposite the pit lane while we were working on the cars and they would all have lunch oh, that's and watch fantastic. us working. Oh, that's and they, they learn something. I mean, you're, you're getting to experience something. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so they would sit there with their little packed lunches having lunch and then dressed in the most exquisite little sailor's uniforms, you know, just, just wonderful. And... 
when any when any team was ready to fire their engine up, so whether it was Benetton or Ferrari or, or Williams or McLaren, it didn't matter. Uh, and and they the mechanics would fire the car up. And of course, back in those days, it was the very loud V10s, V12, VAs, and brum 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 brum, you know, running the car up for a couple of minutes, go through the gears, and then the mechanics would switch the engine off. Boom. And then there'd be this wonderful round of applause from the kids on the other side of the pit lane. That's know? awesome. Yes. I love it. <laughs> yes. It was, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. So, yes, a very soft spot for Japan, for Suzuka, for the track, and most especially for the supporters and the enthusiasts of Formula One in Japan. Yeah. How about, how about you? If you, you know, if you could choose any race that you haven't been to, do you have a particular track you think I'd love to go to? Well, I mean, of course, like I say, you mentioned Monaco. Yeah. You've got to see Monaco. It's yeah. the Super Bowl of the sport. Yes. You know, you yeah. want to no say question. you've done done the, the greatest uh, of all. But it's a totally different, you know, racing experience there. But uh, to just see the grandeur and, and all of it, yeah. the history, you know, and, and would be uh, quite, a, quite a vacation. I do have a friend that uh, he, he visited there just, you know, in different times during the year. But they drove him around what would be the circuit. And, you know, he remembers, you know. Here's where the pit boxes are and everything like yeah. that. So got a feel for it. And, of course, there's you know support uh, memorabilia there year-round that you know, he could enjoy. So one of these days. But, uh, Monaco, is, I mean, yes, Monaco is unquestionably a wonderful classic race. And, um, of course, you know, from the team's perspective, it, it used to be, it's much better now. It used to be awful in, just in terms of the logistics of being able to work there. Uh, well, it used to be the pit box was right on the track, essentially, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. I mean, you know, I've often said during during our Formula One broadcast, you know, it's really, it's a small French fishing village. It's we call it Monaco, but in essence, it's a small French fishing village. And trying to hold a race in a small French fishing village makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, so there was no real paddock, obviously. So the paddock used to be uh, the quayside right at the side of Monaco Harbour. And the pit lane um, was part of the front straight, if you like. But there was no, there was no direct connection between what was the paddock and what was the pit lane. So in the morning, very early in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, all the teams would push their cars from the quayside up into, into the pit lane where they have these tiny little garages, but they weren't big enough to get the cars in. They were simply for tire storage and tool storage. So the cars were always outside in the pit lane in Monaco. Um, and then the pit lane would be closed. And so we couldn't get back to the paddock. The only way then of getting back to the paddock was this serpentine, awful route of going upstairs through scaffolding ladders up and up and across the track and then back down through Raskas and round the corner and back into the paddock and then you'd get whatever tools you need and if you needed a new nose or whatever it would be for a different session if we didn't take that up when we should have done a couple of the guys would have to do this serpentine route down up down up just get get it on the first time (laughs) don't forget to take it in the morning yeah and then of course as soon as the practice sessions were finished and we needed to work on the cars through the evening We'd have to do the same thing. All the tools, all the cars, all the equipment would be loaded into vans, into trucks. We'd physically push the cars back down, round the corner of Raskas, out of the entrance of the pit lane, down Raskas and back into the quayside. And all the vans would arrive with all the tools. And then we'd work on the cars throughout the night in the awnings at the side of the, you know, on the trucks. We didn't have any garages, even there's no garages to work in. 
And then in the morning again, should we be fortunate enough to actually be able to get to sleep, go back to the hotel and sleep was a luxury. Um, some nights, you know, if we had problems with the car, we'd, car, we'd simply carry on working through the night and the next morning push the cars back up again and do the same thing all over again. So in terms of logistic from the teams, it was a nightmare. But as you rightly say, and it is true, no question, uh, even saying all, even for the awful experience of working there, to win Monaco is, is a, exactly. Is it's a always a feather thing. in the hat. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah, it's a Monaco Grand Prix. And I think I have an interest in it somehow. Uh, it was probably, I think, my senior year in high school. Uh, I don't even remember actually which class it was in, but we did something where they put she, uh, the teacher put names of countries in a bowl. Yeah. And we were to pull out a name. And you were assigned that country and then to do a report on it. And yeah. lo and behold, I pulled up Monica. Oh, no kidding. So I did a little report on it and stuff like that. So that really kind of yeah. got me doing some research on it back then. And I still remember doing that. So. Did you write about the Formula One experience? Oh, I mean, oh def- yeah. definitely mentioned that was a big part of what they're known for. And, of yeah. course, you know, just the the interesting part of Prince Rainier marrying Grace Kelly and, and all yeah. that, you know. So. Well, I'll tell you what I like particularly about visiting Monaco. Um Despite all the glitz and the glamour, which is a wonderful thing to see, and the great car collections and the beautiful people are there and, you know, all of the opulence and everything that we associate with Monaco, we have to remember, of course, that underpinning all of that are genuine, real, regular folks that work there every day, live there and work there. You know, they're driving the trucks and the, 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 the fresh fish market and the vegetable market, the fruit market is is there every day and uh, there are little bars and little tucked away corners where the monoguesque the locals gather and have a pastis or a beer or a wine and so i used to get great pleasure in seeking those little corners out yeah so if we did have any spare time the idea of uh, you know one of my one of my great memories funny enough i only wrote about this on twitter the other day i don't know what really made me think about it uh, one year uh, the famed Tabac Corners. You come through. Uh, for those familiar, you know, with the with the layout of Monaco, you come barreling through the tunnel, and now you're down on the harbour front, uh, and you go straight down the harbour front, and then there's a sharp left. Well, that corner is called Tabac, T-A-B-A-C, Tabac, Tabac, whichever way you want to say it, which is uh, French for literally tobacconist. And there is underneath the grandstands, or it used to be, I don't know if it's still there now. Again, I'm going back 20 something years. There used to be a little magazine, a magazine, a little shop there for resupply the, uh, the, the, the yachts. So it was a marine resupply shop, but it wasn't, I don't mean it was for tools and equipment, it was food and supplies, and yeah. whatever. Staples. Whatever. Staples, exactly, yeah. Like a little, um, what do you call them, like a chandler, I suppose, like a supplier for the, for the harbour. Um, but I went in there with a couple of, of Benetton colleagues, and um, we just bought a, a baguette and some brie and uh, a bottle of local red, whether it was Chateau Neuf de Pape, I'm not sure it might have been, actually. Uh, and um, just sat on the side of the harbour on the seawall mm-hmm. there and, and just had a very simple picnic watching the sun go down over the Mediterranean well you enjoy a, a very French lifestyle in Monaco I believe right yes yeah. absolutely yeah but it was just it was yes absolutely I mean f- for all intents and purposes it's it's France <laughs> exactly. you know <laughs> no. they may not want you saying that but, you know. yeah it's the principality of Monaco but uh, they 
you know, the Principality of Monaco relies about 99.99% on, on the country of France to look after them. Yeah. And uh, so, yes, it's, it's very much French. Well, you mentioned that uh, a lot of times you're really working under the awnings of the the, the trucks and everything like yeah. that. Um, I guess the weather there is very... I don't recall ever seeing a very rainy Monaco race or anything like that. It very... do, well, it does It does rain, uh, and it's... Um, but it's one of those little microclimates that changes very quickly. Yeah. Wait 15 minutes? Kind of wait 15 minutes, yes. And you can see it blow it in. So w- what tends to happen with the weather front in Monaco, in, again, in my experience, I mean, I haven't, you know, I've spent several, I suppose all in all, I've probably spent about a month there in total, split up over the years in three days here and three days there. But what, what I tended to see with the weather climate, the microclimate in Monaco, the... The rain would build out in the Mediterranean, and the clouds would blow in, and you can see it, you can see it coming. And then behind Monaco, you've got the hills, you've got the mountainside there, um, uh, the Corniche, if you like. And so the weather would blow in from the sea, go through Monaco, up over the hills at the back, and then circulate. It would catch another air current and blow back out to sea. Ah. Uh, and so you could see you could see it physically coming in. You could see it rolling up. So you'd have a lot of sort of mist. If it was gonna if it was gonna rain, you could tell it because it started to get very misty. And uh, this the weather front would come in up over the hills, go back out. And if you were lucky, it would stay out there. But sometimes, of course, it would catch that catch that lower wind and be blown back in. You get this sort of endless cycle. Okay. Yeah. But um, on the whole, of course, you know. You, you're on the Côte d'Azur, and uh, well, it is a very beautiful place down there. Yeah, beautiful. I imagine it's gorgeous. Yeah, the sun, the sun glinting off the, off the mat. The, the Côte d'Azur, the d'Azur with this sort of idyllic blue colour to it. But, um, yes, it's, it is a beautiful spot down there. And it, again, to take nothing away from Monaco, but you only have to drive 10 or 50 miles either side of Monaco, and you're surrounded, once again, you're back in sort of old Provence you're in these mm-hmm. little tiny villages um, that haven't really changed for you know, literally hundreds of years so you can find very affordable hotels and you can find little cafes and bars and restaurants that are going to take care of you not for a great deal of money oh that's fantastic and a lot of folks do that you know yeah. always consider just to a wider audience here if ever you want to attend the Monaco Grand Prix there is a very regular train service going in and out of Monaco that will connect all of those little villages and towns on the way up to Monaco, through Monaco, and back down the other side as if you're going out towards Italy. Um, so, and you can you can find villages and hotels that take great care of you for a very affordable price, jump on the train in the morning for a few francs or a few euros now, they'll drop you right in the middle of Monaco, enjoy the race experience, get back on the train, come back at night yeah. and escape very the craziness. Way to do it. Yeah. Escape the craziness of, of Monaco, yeah. Yeah. Yes, but um, I enjoyed Monaco very much. Tremendous, tremendous thrill to, to win that win that race with Monaco uh, with, with Benetton and uh, Michael driving the car and uh, yeah it'll always stand out as a as a landmark race and long may it continue I think Formula One and Monaco have got a very great relationship a very close relationship for many years of course and it'd be awful to see that race drop away yeah and like I, like I alluded to and talked about my world of sports that's the one I remember was right. just I remember the hairpin so there's no doubt what I was watching so 
Yes, I mean, it, it, it's just such a crazy place to try and hold a race. And the thing that always comes back to me is, you know, this thing about it's a small French fishing village, you know, what are we doing? But um, can you imagine knocking on the door of the FIA's office in, in Place de la Concorde in Paris and say, hey, I've got a great idea for a motor race. It's a, it's a tiny little village by the sea. There's hardly any... There's no infrastructure there. There's no garages there. There's no way we could really hold this race. But wouldn't it be a cool idea? I mean, they just say, no, <laughs> of course we can't do that. And we're going to make it the jewel in your crown at yes, some point. Yes, exactly. But Monaco did it. Monaco, you know, for all the reasons that we know, uh, made, made that work. Yeah, but it is, it is a wonderful experience. Yeah, so, you know, of course Monaco and, and Monza, for obvious reasons, were the... Um, we talked about the... Um, the passion from the Japanese fans uh, at Suzuka, uh, but that in any way can never diminish the absolutely wild passion of the Tifosi and Monster. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, an extraordinary experience. Absolutely. And in, funny enough, Kevin, in sharp contrast, we again, we were chatting about Suzuka earlier on, and I was describing how the average Japanese race fan will not cross that line if told not to cross that line. And of course they will do the opposite in, in Monza. But my experience in Monza was always, as soon as the flag fell, the, the checkered flag fell, like I'm, I'm talking is the second that the flag fell, it was standard practice for all the teams to be pulling their pit equipment off the walls as fast as they could because the crowds were coming. Oh, they yeah. were never going to be held back by the, uh, you know, the, the the catch fencing of the circuit. They would always find a way through. And if you didn't get the uh, the gantry, the pit equipment, the jacks, the air guns, uh, the pit board signs, if you didn't go get that stuff back inside the garage within five minutes, it had gone. If it's not nailed down, it, it's found it a was, home. It, <laughs> it was absolutely gone. Yeah, yeah. And um, so what would happen is as soon as the flag fell... Um, the garage doors would be closed. We're, you know, we'd get all the pit, pit equipment in as fast as possibly good, and then the, and the mechanics would close the garage doors. Now, if you were unfortunate enough to be caught on in the pit lane with the garage doors down, and and you know people were just banging and banging and banging on the on the on the doors to try and gain entrance to see the cars. You know, it was, it was a wild experience. But if you were unfortunate enough to be a, a Formula One engineer, mechanic, whatever, in the pit lane. At any garage door, the standard practice was to take your Foca pass off, your credential, uh, and slide it underneath the gap at the bottom of the door, like just an inch. The, the oh, guys just to show you let me in. Yeah, yeah, and show that it was a you know one of the you know one of the crew, mm -hmm. and then they would open the door by about twelve inches and pull you underneath. <laughs> <laughs> Save you from the horde. Save you from the madding horde. Yes, it was very bizarre. Amazing. Well, there we well, are. I mean, yeah. look at that. Our, our, our time for our little conversation is up. Well, and we'll definitely definitely uh, revisit that. There's many tales to tell from those days. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we set out to the idea of doing our little chats down here, gentle listener, we always, you know, came up with this idea. We're not going to focus on motor racing. There's so many other things to uh, talk about, too. But it's a, it's a nice distraction to come back and talk about the things that are passionate to us. And, you know, motor racing has a, always been a great part of my life. And I know you're a big enthusiast of it, too. So we're, yeah. we're bound to come back and visit. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Yeah. Until well, then. Yeah. Until then, we better say goodbye. Say goodbye, Kevin. Goodbye. Bye-bye.